Sure. Perfect. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hall, and I have the pleasure to interview Mike Tashurda from RTS, which hopefully you've heard of. Probably pronounce your first or last name wrong. Hopefully, I've got the first name right because that's quite <laughs> simple. Um, but I've been following Mike for a number of years. And for me, he was my first real introduction to using kind of RPE-based systems. So that's rate of perceived exertion, kind of auto-regulated based training. And I absolutely love it. Um, I know there's loads of different derivatives nowadays. Reps in reserve um, is one that I'm a big fan of as well. And effectively, they're the same sort of thing. And I'm, I know our listener base who are based around powerlifting and bodybuilding will know what this is. So Mike is the founder of Reactive Training Systems, uh, a powerlifting-based service which has produced a number of world-class athletes um, and, as I said, has been known to integrate RPE with power and strength sports um, and really has to kind of, we have to all take our hat off to Mike for doing that because it's even got Eric Helms doing some fantastic research now who has been on the podcast and also uh, Mike Zurdos, who everyone knows. So um, it's, yeah, it's fantastic and it's helped people so much. Uh, Mike himself is a fantastic powerlifter, um, has so many different kind of world records, gold medals. Um, he's won eight USPL national championships. I mean, I could reel them all off, but I think it would just be kind of, well, it might be quite nice for Mike. Um, but I don't know <laughs> if it would mean a lot to a lot of people, but just right. to know that Mike has won a lot of things, a very, very strong guy. Um, I know Mike Isretel is very fond of your actual squat form. Um, I know posting on Instagram, just fantastic form. Um, and just someone I highly respect and look up to for not only being a fantastic coach, but also a fantastic lifter himself. Um, so he's also a family man, which has to be incorporated into kind of everything because like all of us, we have lives outside of the gym. Um, and I like to kind of in introduce that also because, I mean, yeah, it's an important aspect, especially with auto-regulated training. It comes into things with stress management and stuff like that. So, is there anything else you wanted to add, Mike? Sorry, that was a kind of bit of a roundabout way of my history with yourself and your work, and kind of what you do yourself. Yeah, no, I think you you more or less covered it. Yeah, thank you for that. That's uh, um, yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the family aspect of it as well. You know, that's uh, um, anybody that's you know, I've got I've got one uh, son, and uh, I think anybody in a similar situation can kind of say that you know that that becomes a, a major facet of your life for sure. Hundred percent. I know Mike yeah. Zurdos is very much the same. He we yeah. were struggling to find time for him to come on because he's got to balance all these commitments, and they really yeah. they play a massive role. And uh, the fact you have been able to effectively manage them is credit to yourself. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So um, my buddy Pascal, who I know has worked with yourself, has come up with some fantastic questions um, that I'm really excited to ask you and get your kind of experience and thoughts about. Um, and the first one is to do with how powerlifting has a, a massive rise in popularity over the last few years um, and there's kind of bigger and better talent all the time. And he wanted to know, and I want to know, what are the main differences between kind of good lifters and then world-class lifters, do you see their particular physiological traits, psychological traits, environmental, social traits? Um, I know it's quite a broad question, but I know you've had some good experience there. Sure. I mean, it's it's difficult to say. Uh, it seems like the high-level lifters that I work with, the, 
the you know world record holders and people at that level they do have some common traits uh, but those traits aren't exclusive to that group you know for example uh, by and large they all uh, do their work uh, they don't complain about it um, they give me you know at least reasonably good feedback um, you know and that varies a bit from athlete to athlete but that's not to say that people that are not at that level don't do their work and that they're all complainers or anything like that because they're absolutely not. Uh, so it seems like traits like that um, are necessary to get to that level, but they're not sufficient in and of themselves to get to that level. And then, of course, you know, I mean, there's a, there is a, a natural talent component to it. You know, I've definitely worked with people who just aren't going to make it to that level, you know, and that's just that's just the facts of life. But the cool thing about strength sports, uh, powerlifting in particular, is that although there is a competitive aspect to it, I think that for most people, even the people at the at the highest level, um, doing the best that you can do, the best that you can do for yourself uh, that's the, the best that you can do, you know, and that's the fastest road to achievement in a competitive sense. Uh, that's the fastest way to be satisfied with the performances that you turn in, you know, like I, I've worked with some, some guys that are, you know, very near the, the top level, you know, let's say they're top three in the world and they really want, to, to win that world championship, you know, with, uh, like they want it so bad that they can taste it, you know, but you know, it's not uncommon to see the top guy in a particular weight class is just a really dominant force, you know, yeah. and you go, well, we might get there, you know, but it probably won't be this year. It probably won't be next year either, you know, uh, but we may get there eventually. So in the meantime, you've got to be satisfied with what you can do. And in that sense, it's the same for everybody, you know, highest levels on down. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's, I, I don't know why I think about this aspect, but it's kind of in bodybuilding, you saw like Arnie, he dominated for years. And there were people at his toes all the time who were very, very good, but they never took the title. And it, I guess it's like any sport, there's people who are just that good and uh, they're always going to dominate and kind of be the best. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting in this. I, I suppose philosophically, in any sport, the best you can do is the best you can do. But it's much more apparent in a sport like powerlifting or like uh, track and field or something like that, um, where there's very little tactical component yeah. to it. You know, uh, if you go out there and you uh, lift the best that you can lift. Well, that's, that's all you can do, you know? And I think for it to be a healthy pursuit, that has to be sufficient. Uh, that has to be sufficiently satisfying to the athlete, you know, to, you know, just for that to be a good thing for them to engage in over the, over the long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And no, I think that's, and that leads really nicely onto actually our next question in that, um, obviously everyone needs the same sort of drive and passions and will and consistency and hard work 
But when you're working with, say, someone who is a bit more novice compared to someone who is kind of top class, are there any kind of big differences in how you do program? Um, or is it kind of fundamental basics for virtually everyone across the board? Well, I mean, I suppose it depends on what you mean by differences. You know, there, if you were to look at the two programs side by side, then, yeah, there are differences. But there are differences in everyone's program. Um, just a, an example off the top of my head. Um, we've got Stephen Manuel, who's training for the World Championship this year. Uh, and right now, he's training at a really high frequency. Mm -hmm. He's taking heavy competition lifts twice a week. Uh, he's going through his heavier assistance work twice a week. And then on the other end of that, also training at the highest level, you've got a lifter like Kelly Branton, who's training his competition lifts once a week and really going on more of an, an upper-lower split. So like at, at one end of the spectrum, you have two guys that are at the very highest level, but they train very differently. And the same kind of echoes through the the skill ranks, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but the the common thing uh, is the process. The process that we go through to develop training uh, is the same for a lifter at any level. You know, you, you start with an assessment. You've got to get to know the lifter a little bit. Uh, you figure out, you know, I mean, for one, what do they want? Now, that, that may sound like, uh, well, let me just tell you, it's an easy question to overlook. You know, it's easy to take for granted, like, mm -hmm. oh, well, this is a power lifter. They want to get strong. Yeah. And for the most part, yeah, but there are caveats to that. Some people are like, whatever it takes, just make me stronger, you know? And other people are like, well, I've only got this much time on this day, this much time on this day, you know? And it has to, you have different constraints that you're working with, you know? So, so first you have to assess all these things. And then there's the more uh, mechanical assessments or the more technical assessments that you do. Yeah, uh, how's the lifter's technique? What are their weak ranges of motion, and so on? You know, mm -hmm. you build a, a training program that's suited for that athlete. But then I think where the the real magic happens, as far as as far as I'm concerned, is that as you gain more information about how that athlete responds to training, you have to update the plan. Yeah. You know, so we have a system on our on our website. It's actually a free system. It's free for anybody to use if you want. It's a a training log application. Um, so you, if you if you don't mind, uh, no, totally, uh, if you totally. go, so if you go to reactivetrainingsystems.com and you log in and you click on apps, you'll see a, a whole suite of apps that are there, free for anybody to use. And we designed it for our lifters to use because we think it's valuable internally. Uh, but I mean, there's no reason why it shouldn't be valuable to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so. It's there for you to use if you want. But one thing that our lifters do, there's a training log app. So they're recording their training in this in this app. And at the end of each block, we'll go to the, the reporting section and run a block review report, uh, which kind of gives us an overview on, like, how did the lifter perform in this training block? Uh, how did they feel during this training block? Because we gather that information as well. Um and then what were the general characteristics of this training block, you know, uh, in terms of exercise selection, volume, intensity, and so on. Mm -hmm. So you gather this information and say that you're working with a lifter and you s string together, you know, three, four, five, six training blocks. Um, 
and all the training blocks are blocks that you think are going to produce results and, and often you're not far off. But the real neat thing is that once you get a few of these block reviews stacked up, you can go back and look through them and say, okay, this one worked great, that one not so much, this one worked great. So you take all those training blocks that worked really great and see what are the common common themes. And you could do it the other way as well. You could say which ones were total disasters and and uh, see what the commonalities are there as well. Uh, so I just did this recently with one of our lifters uh, who's also training up for Worlds. And we found that, um, especially lately, say in the past year, uh, she's responded really well to low-intensity work. You know, so something more in the 70% range. That's kind of counterintuitive because we think, like, okay, there you have the, your low-intensity base-building phase where you know, you're kind of setting the stage for later on. But one thing we notice is that when she does that work, she gets stronger now, <laughs> you know, it's not that she gets stronger later yeah. she gets stronger from it immediately. So that's extremely valuable information for her, mm -hmm. you know, so you can construct a, a training plan that's actually tailored to the individual needs of the athlete. And, you know, most people are going to respond in a somewhat average way, but if you want to really dial it in and get to the, you know, the best kind of training for an individual, I think that's the kind of process that you have to go through. And, you know, it may not completely stand everything on its head. You know, you may not find an, an athlete who gets the best squatting results from doing leg press. You know, it may not be that, mm -hmm. um, but you'll find, you know, deviations from the average, you know, and, I so far haven't found anybody who's exactly perfectly average either. Yeah. So uh, that's an important thing to, to note as well. No, I think that's really good because um, I think a lot of people kind of take programs off the internet and then they don't, they fail to either maybe completely log their workouts. And then if they do log them, they don't actually go back and look at what they've done and kind of what's worked well, what hasn't worked well. And I think this is why coaching systems like you've got or even kind of the one-on-one -on -one coaching you provide and like we do it's we do that for the person we're kind of looking at what's working we're getting their feedback we're making notes um, whether it be certain exercises kind of intensity ranges or kind of volume parameters that do particularly well for that person um, and I think I think individual differences is obviously a small thing in reality because of there's overarching principles you've got to get right before you can even look at it but I think that is the people listening to this podcast, the people who take their training really seriously, it's the, the thing that's going to set their training apart is being able to identify kind of the differences. Um, I'd be interested to hear actually that you talked about um, Screamer Samuel uh, and the, the other lift of the names gone from my mind for, for some reason. Yeah, Kelly. Kelly, Kelly Graham. Yeah. What, why do you have any inklings into why they respond, like you set them up that way? Do they particularly respond to a higher frequency, lower frequency? Is there any characteristics you see between that, whether it would be like fiber types, environment, kind of mentality in the gym, some people get really amped up? Um, I think there are a lot of things that factor in, but I'm not sure that I have a, a complete model for it. You know, like, like it's definitely not a predictive model even. Yeah. Like for, you know, I mean, you may say on one hand that, uh, for example, Kelly likes to get fired up uh, for a heavy, uh, a heavier attempt, you know, especially in the squat and the bench. Um, 
it's it comes more naturally to him to to get amped up for it. So in a situation like that, you may think, well, people like that that kind of go to that level um, tend to thrive on uh, lower volumes, lower frequencies. You've got to bring something down a little yeah. bit so that they can recover from training. And I would agree with that in a general principle sort of way. But then you have somebody like uh, Steve Emanuel who is also one of those guys that mm-hmm. likes to get fired up for his lifts. But he's thriving on a different uh, programming style. you know. So there's clearly something else going on there. Now, maybe it's uh, maybe body weight is a factor. Maybe absolute weight lifted is a factor. Yeah. And I think that it probably is, although, you know, I mean, you're still talking about uh, top levels there, you know, in terms of capability. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those guys in the squad in particular are some of the best squatters in the world. Um, yet there's still this, you know, giant, giant difference. Um, and to some extent, I can't account for that. Now, Again, in, in the sense of uh, building a process, in the beginning, you know, you you have to take those things as as factors. I like to start from a position of uh, what do we know works, you know. So for most lifters that I'm working with, especially, they're not ranked beginners that have never touched a barbell. Mm-hmm. You know, they have some training history. So let's look at that training history. What do we know works? And we'll use that as home base. And then we can layer the other stuff on top of it. Okay. Um, you tend to be a calm analytical lifter and you know, you have these uh, sorts of technical issues, these sorts of weaknesses that we want to work on and we can kind of build a program from there, but the program has to evolve. I mean, I would a hundred percent rather take a program that had a bad start and continually improved yeah. rather than take a program that had a great start but never improved you know no that's really important and i guess i'd be interested here when you are when you're talking about kind of seeing what's helped and what hasn't what kind of things are you looking at to identify kind of that it's had a positive influence um are you doing kind of testing or um like a, like amraps or anything like that how are you uh, assessing that we use uh, estimated 1rm uh, so like you mentioned in the beginning, we do RPE based training for pretty much everybody. And I've got to where, um, for a lot of people, I like to include some type of benchmarking each week. Okay. So, uh, I think it's gotten to be a lot more popular where people will do like a single at eight RPE every week. Uh, I think it's a lot more common to see than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, we started to do that because, uh, it provide first. It's a it's a good training tool by itself. You get frequent exposure to um, competition level weights, competition like performance. Um, it's a really great exposure, you know. But then there's also the benchmarking element to it. You know, it's really easy to see progress, uh, and the progress you're you can be certain is meaningful progress. You know, um, if you add ten pounds to your ten RM. That may not mean much or anything to your one RM, yeah. you know, but if you take a, a 93% single or to put more accurately, you take a single at an eight RPE and you add 10 pounds to it and it's still an eight RPE, then you can be certain that you've gotten stronger, you know, like there's no doubt about it. Um, so that type of benchmarking 
we like to use that and use the um, the rep and RPE combination uh, to form an estimated 1RM. And that estimated 1RM is charted, and then we're, we're really looking for trends. You know, if it drops down one week, we don't panic. Um, you know, it's just yeah. it's an estimation that's, you know, it's easy to, to panic over stuff like that if you've never looked at it on a week to week basis before, you know, but really what you're looking at is that overall trend line. And if the trend is going up, then I'm telling you a PR is inevitable. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. You know, you don't hit one every time, but if you're getting stronger then I mean, it's, it's coming, you know? And I mean, again, to, um, that's a thing that we can, use the training log for, you know, there's a competition progress page and, and it builds those charts for you. So it cuts back on calculation time, you know, I guess something I'm interested in is that with the kind of testing at that, the single and eight RM or even the estimated, um, rep maxes, because it's, there's so many things that could potentially influence that single number on that day. Is it ever, do you kind of have to look at a broad kind of what have you been doing in the last few weeks uh, or months even uh, that could have led up to this because it might not be what you're doing here and now that's caused this positive response it might be what you've had been doing in in future kind of like the like the fitness and fatigue model in that maybe sure. you've performed well here because of what you did beforehand right um I suppose that could be just a programming tendency for me, but I've not seen that um, to to warrant a lot of uh, uh, practical consideration from me. Okay. So what what I mean by that is that for me, in the way that I've the way that I tend to operate is that if the number is up this week, most likely it's due to something we did last week. Cool. Maybe it's due to something we did two weeks ago. You know, but the further back you go, the less likely it is due to something from there. You know, um, especially if you're benchmarking it every week. Um, now, the reason I say that maybe that's due to the way that I program is I've never really got a lot out of uh, the the delayed transformation effect. You know, so uh, where people you know deliberately overtrain or deliberately overreach, however you want to term it, they they do too much work. Mm -hmm. uh, for a period of time and then, uh, have a more extended or more prolonged taper period. And that's supposed to, uh, super compensate and, you know, reach, uh, higher than normal peaks. I've never had that work. Uh, I've tried it a, a bunch of times with myself and other athletes and, you know, we always get about where we thought we'd be, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it, it kind of becomes, a uh, an increased complexity, yeah. you know, and you're already dealing with a complex system and increasing the complexity further just makes it more unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So especially in recent years, I've really gone the other direction hard, like simplifying the training, uh, almost to a ridiculous degree. Um, so we make it as, as simple as we, as we can so that we can better see what's producing the results and um, make better predictions as far as like this is what's going to build up the athlete or not. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so far, I mean, it was kind of a nervous thing when we first started, you know, because it's like, well, wait, wait, you know, 
making things this simple, what if it's too simple? What if it's, uh, you know, what if, you know, you're re- removing some essential element of the training, you know, and you don't know. Um, but I can tell you that that has not been an issue at all. Like we've honestly been uh, pretty surprised with the results uh, it, that it was even better than we had predicted in the beginning, you know? And I mean, I don't mean to say that we've got it all figured out because there's still some more questions that I've got and some things that we're tinkering with and trying to make it work a little bit better, you know? And if we talk in a year, hopefully I go, uh, man, we've learned so much. And <laughs> that, what I said before was, you know, um, hopefully not wrong, but just, you know, not a complete picture yeah. yet. You know, hopefully we continue to learn those things. Anyway, well, I'm get, getting off track of your no, original I, question. No, I, I really like that answer because even for myself as a coach, when I tried to ever use more complicated systems, it just made the athlete potentially got more confused. They didn't really understand what they were doing in a structured sense kind of to view things. And then it actually made assessment more difficult from my end. So simplifying things for my own training and for their training has made life a lot easier. And I completely agree. Sometimes you feel like, are you missing a trick? Because simple doesn't always, like, technical seems like it should be better, but simple often is actually the best way going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And, and simple doesn't mean... Um, it, it, it doesn't mean basic, necessarily. It doesn't mean... Um, simple in the sense of unsophisticated yeah but but i think that you know you see that with a lot of things you know like if you look at um i don't know i don't know why this comes to mind but watches comes to mind you know like there are like the super complex and and whatever watches you know but calculator watches aren't i mean they're complex but uh they're not really seen as sophisticated yeah you know what i'm you know what i mean yeah um I'm not sure if that's the, the best example to use, but uh, that's what came to mind. So, so everyone, there we are. Everyone relies on a good standard Casio. Uh, Casio watches in the US. Casio, yeah, yeah. yeah. Casio is the, the standard watch to get. You know it's going to perform. It or for, like you think of cards, you think of like a Ford or something along those lines. Something that's you know is going to perform well and keep consistent. Um, yeah. So no, that's brilliant, and I, that leads me on to the next question, um, which again draws on kind of your personal experience with lifters um just asking kind of in terms of weak points within lifts kind of do they show themselves only at the advanced levels or do they show themselves at all levels when should we go about attacking them and how like identifying weak points i know even through your coaching calls that are really really helpful online for free um for everyone to view on youtube that they're really they've helped me identify weak points on my own lifts other lifters um, you have a really good eye for it and kind of can you develop that um, kind of how do you identify it? Are they something we need to worry about when we're a bit kind of more novice? You know, I don't, I suppose it depends on what you mean by novice because past a certain point you do want to focus on just developing movement proficiency. But once you've got that down and, and once you can, I suppose, execute a heavy attempt uh, say a say a 1RM and not have serious technical breakdowns mm-hmm. um, then you're probably to the point where it would be helpful to address weaknesses in some way mm-hmm. and it also depends a bit on volumes and frequencies and, and whatnot um, if you're only say deadlifting 
uh, once a week, then there's not really any room in the program to incorporate things like special exercises and stuff like that. You know, you're going to deadlift, you're going to deadlift in the competition style because that's going to get you the best return on your, on your investment. Um, it's only when you're, you know, able to deadlift for the deadlift, I would say more than once a week, you know, for the bench, it's probably more than twice a week. Uh, for the squad, it's, you know, between there one, once and twice a week. Um, once you get to that level, then it's valuable to bring in other lifts, you know. And as far as assessing those, I would say that the main thing that you're looking for is um, where does the bar slow down the most? Not where it, not where it's slowest, mm-hmm. but where does uh, it decelerate the most? Where do you bleed off bar speed, you know? I can tell you just for raw lifters, uh, typically that's going to be right around parallel in the squat. It's going to be between one and five centimeters off the chest and the bench. And the deadlift is the one probably with the most variability. If you're a flat back deadlifter, it's probably going to be off the floor. If you're a round back deadlifter, it's probably going to be at the lockout. And I would say that that's reliable enough that if your weakness is at the lockout, you're probably a round back deadlifter. Mm -hmm. Not always, but probably. Um, So you can start off there. um, And if you have no idea what you're doing, you could address those weak ranges of motion and get pretty far. Um, But there are some other mechanics that happen uh, with the lifts as well. Um, For the squat in particular, it's like what sort of deficiency pops up like what happens to the lifter you know if you squat down and you get to the bottom and the hips rise before the barbell does you know now a lot of people think of this as a good morning squat but it doesn't have to look terrible you know in fact it's a really common mechanic you know Uh, and it can be pretty subtle too like just a a subtle hip rise uh, as you come out of the hole and you'll see this as well um like you'll sit to the bottom and then as the hips rise, the knees will come back yeah. and, and then they go up. Um, if you're, if you have a pattern like that, then that's going to point to one set of exercises that tend to address that chest fall mechanic. You know, if you squat to the bottom and, and you can't stop yourself in the hole abruptly and there's just like the hip stop, but the bar keeps moving down a little bit. There's this squish in the torso. Oh. Um, you know, that's a mechanic that happens as well. And that mm-hmm. one's really subtle, actually. It's, yeah. it's hard to pick out. Um, but that's going to point you in the direction of a different deck of exercises. You know, But again, these, these provide you with, I think, really good starting points. You know? But let's, let's take that chest ball mechanic. You know, just off the top of my head, some things that you may want to try. Uh, you may want to try pin squats. You may want to try safety bar squats uh, or high bar squats. Um, and let's just kind of take those three. Now, the particular lift that a, a lifter is going to respond best to, it's hard to tell beyond that. Now, I would say any one of those three is a, is a good candidate. Mm-hmm. And things like pause squats and, and other assistance movements um, are less likely to be good candidates. But... It's when we try them, you know, let's say we try any one of those three and we can look back at those block reviews and say, you know, I really thought it would be pin squats because it's pin squats for most people. But 
you in particular seem to respond best to high bar squats. You know, well, okay, that's that's important to know. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we're leading into that major competition or something like that, or we're in this stage where we really need to drive additional progress, then we'll reach into the into our bag of tricks and pull out the ones that we know that you're going to respond yeah. best to. Yeah. And actually, on a similar point, you talked about. It sounds like you keep the squat bench deadlift. Do you keep those in year round or do you ever remove those kind of after competitions far away and then reintroduce them as you get closer? Um, and so you, could you work on weak points more so there when you have more freedom? Well, we, I suppose you would say that we keep them in year round, but there are short periods of time where the competition lifts themselves are, are, at least de-emphasized and oftentimes removed entirely. Um, But they're short periods of time, and they occur fairly frequently throughout the year. Now, the frequency varies enormously from lifter to lifter. Um, But I would say, so we call these periods, uh, at least more recently we've called these periods pivot blocks. Okay. Uh, It's a block of training where we're kind of pivoting onto a different uh, into a different direction or into a different strategy or something like that. Cool. So, um, we kind of came up with that nomenclature, uh, through a lot of trial and error. Uh, deload seems to confer that the training is going to be easy and it's not. Um, but it is a deload ish sort of thing, you know? So you'll find that the overall workload is reduced by more than half usually. And um, the movements are a lot less specific. The intensity is down. But if you tell somebody, hey, you're going to do a deload this week, just the the thought that goes through their mind is that they're going to go to the gym, they're going to do some easy stuff, and then they're going to go home. Yeah. But it's not that. It's not easy. <laughs> you know, uh, It'll still be like you know, 10 reps at a 8 RPE or a 9 RPE, but there just won't be as many of the sets um, and it may be an exercise that's going to require lighter weights or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. So it's, you'll do stuff like that. And in those periods we'll include stuff like, uh, like we may not do competition squat, but we may do high bar squats or safety bar squats. We may not do competition benching, uh, but we'll do bench with the feet up. You know, uh, that's also a great time to do alternate stance deadlifting. Um, which I used to be, you know, not a very big proponent of, uh, and I kind of thought, you know, well, what's the point? But, mm-hmm. you know, through experimentation, I see that there is, I can't quite put my finger on the why yet, but I see that there is a benefit to it, you know, and that's really a perfect time, I think, yeah. to get away from that competition style stance, uh, in the deadlift as well. So in these periods, um, We'll, we'll get away from the competition lifts and they occur between loading blocks and they also occur post-competition. Cool. Uh, they're usually a little bit longer post-competition, but you know, again, that kind of d- depends on the athlete. Awesome. You know? No, that's really yeah. interesting to hear. Cause I, I think a lot of people are kind of maybe, I, I think a lot of people do just keep them in year round, which maybe isn't a bad strategy, but I think having that break, especially kind of the same loading, in the same positions and hitting the same joints and tissues in the exact same way, even if you do very intensity 
and volume sometimes it can just be a bit much and i guess just for freshness i guess have you found uh just out of interest yeah. have you found them to be kind of really quite beneficial or yeah i mean this is definitely a thing that we're still working on and, yeah. and there's a lot that um i can't quite articulate yet we it's more of a feel thing at this mm -hmm. stage um now hopefully it doesn't stay there we want to get to where we can articulate it and explain it and everything but um you know, figuring figuring out the pivots is has been um, challenging. It's definitely something that requires a lot of attention to to get it right. Um, and it'll be nice to get it. And I mean, we're talking about dealing with athletes who have a complex response to training. And it's one thing to figure out, you know, this stimulus response relationship, like we were just talking about, like. I have you do X and then next week when we take your benchmark, there's an improvement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then we'll do X and then there's another improvement or, you know, even over the course of a development cycle, you know, um, you know, we did training for these four, six, 10 weeks, whatever. And, you know, we see that your lift was stagnant until the last two weeks and then it jumped up a lot. Okay. So we know this about your response now. That's one thing. And that's fairly simple to figure out. But when you're trying to figure out something, um, like the, like these pivots, um, it's not so straightforward. It's that the pivot can have an influence on the training in the next development cycle. And if you don't get it right, then it will, um, kind of taint the results of the next development cycle. It won't completely ruin it or it won't, it's not a make or break thing, but it's, it's much more difficult to see the effect if there's any effect at all, mm -hmm. you know, so teasing out what's really going on has certainly not been easy, yeah. you know, but, but it's, I mean, I think puzzles like that are fun to figure out yeah. as well, you know? And so that's why at this stage, there's a lot of individual attention that's required. There's a lot of, um, you know, just figuring out on a one-on-one -on -one basis and hopefully, we'll do that enough times and you know, some patterns will begin to emerge yeah. and we'll be able to kind of extract the lesson. Yeah. I think it's so. an important thing for a lot of people to remember that it's, you always have to take a big picture view about things, even with like training and nutrition, like a lot of the time things are happening on a small scale basis that can just be kind of ignored and you just look at overall trends and how things are going. And, and the fact we're talking about very kind of, minor details that are already falling under principles that we know work so it's not like we're trying like you're trying things that you just are just pulling out of nowhere they're they're things right. that should definitely work and you're just tinkering with things and as someone with so much experience that's definitely something good that you're doing um con consistently trying to improve your athletes yeah you know it's this process of of zeroing in on what the right prescription is for for each individual and I think kind of getting back to, to the core of your question a, a bit, I really think there is some value in getting away from the competition exercises uh, for a period of time. And I think it's it's harder to see in like when you're a younger lifter even, you know, and I don't want to make it completely an age thing, but I do think it's a bit of a maturity thing, uh, just being able to take a a long-term view of what's going on, yeah. uh, taking the, that time away from, um, from heavier work from the same movement patterns and stuff like that. I think it improves your longevity, mm -hmm. you know, and, 
I mean, you're right. There are some things that we know work really great. Um, but as far as what do we actually know about them, a lot of it tends to be shorter term in the grand scheme of a, of a, a lifter's life, uh, competitive lifespan. Yeah. You know, so for example, over a, a 12 week period, if you knew, you know, I mean, uh, let me kind of borrow and adapt one of the John bros ultimatums. You know, if you, you know, you knew you had to add whatever he says, uh, uh, 50 or hundred pounds to your squat in the next 12 weeks, uh, to save the life of a member of your family, what would you do? Well, you would squat mm -hmm. all the time, you know, and you would train in a highly specific way and, and really, uh, push it over that shorter time frame to, to make that progress. But the question that we're faced with, you know, is realistically more one of, uh, a multi-year problem. Yeah. You know, if the, if you phrase the question differently, you have to add as much to your squat as you can, uh, over the next 20 years, you know, well, do you think you're going to squat every day for 20 years? Well, probably not, mm -hmm. but um, that does lead you to some different conclusions, you know, and I think those are important. And we, we need to get at what is the question that we're trying to to answer here, you know? No, I think that's, that's brilliant. And I think um, if we can lead on to our next question, actually, it's kind of a bit of a sure. side stance, but I, th I think that was a good way to end it in that sure when you do view things in a longer term perspective it changes the outlook completely definitely yeah um yeah. yeah the actual next question was to do with meat day itself um and how about kind of selecting on the day attempts do you look for particular things um with your lifters uh, how do you go about that do you have a system i know matt gary has some i mean i watched some of his i think he did some work for powerlifting university and yourself um, and it was fantastic. I wonder if you have anything yeah. similar with your lifters. Yeah, we definitely do. Um, I mean, we've got kind of our own spin on it, but it's it's derived, influenced by Matt Gary uh, really, really heavily. I think it, when it comes to attempt selection, he's got a really good system. Mm -hmm. He and we did a podcast with with him recently, uh, and we talked about his attempt selection paradigms and stuff like that. I think one of the underrated things about him as a platform coach is his ability to pick the right number for the lifter. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, like he's got a system, but he's able to apply that system so well, you know, for his individual lifters because he's got such a good eye for picking the right number. Um, and I tell a story sometimes about, uh, this time when I was competing at nationals uh, a number of years ago and I forget what the exact numbers were, but I hit my opening bench and it went normally. So we moved to the plan second attempt and, and I hit that, that lift and, uh, and I'll just kind of pick some numbers to illustrate what I'm saying. And, um, I really wanted to go to, uh, 212.5 for my third attempt. And I came off the platform and Matt said, you've really only got 210, you know, go 210, not any higher. Mm -hmm. And I said, Matt, I, I know what I did wrong. You know, I know what I did wrong in that, uh, on that attempt. You know, I think 212. And he's like, no, really, I think you should go 210. I said, okay, Matt, you know, I, I trust you. I trust your judgment. We'll go 210. And so I get back out there for the, for the third attempt. And I bring it down, pause. They say press. And I start to push the bar back up. And 
it's just grinding, you know, and it's one of those where you know that it's going to go, yeah. but you're just grinding your life away for it, you know, and, uh, and I remember being about halfway up and thinking, God damn it, Matt was right, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just the perfect call, you yeah. know, and, and he does that with such consistency, um, but anyway, again, I'm getting off topic, but um, yeah, we model our attempt selection uh, after Matt's model. Uh, we do include more of an RPE spin to it. Yeah. Um, we have a couple different plans, you know, like a like a plan A and a plan B. Mm-hmm. And one important thing to note is that plan A is situation normal, you know, um, and then plan B is uh, below normal, you know. So if you come off and your opener feels great, it feels awesome, yeah. then we're still staying with plan A, you know. And that doesn't lead us astray very often. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to base the goal weights off of the lifter's estimated 1RM, um, especially if we feel like we've got a, a really accurate estimated 1RM. Uh, then we'll base it off of that. And so we, we don't expect them to go, you know, 50 pounds more. You know, there are lifters who tend to be meat day performers. Yeah. And we know that about them and we'll kind of build that into the goal weight, yeah. you know, but at that point it's like, if you come off the platform and it feels normal or better, then we stick to plan a, if it feels worse than normal, then we go to plan B and then we kind of have some RPE guidelines, uh, for what normal is for mm-hmm. each attempt, you know, and the coach is helping with that as well because some athletes and especially uh, on the platform in front of a crowd, in front of judges, it, uh, messes with your perception of RPE a little bit, you know? So that's where the coach can, can really, uh, come in and, and be helpful. No, I think that's really valuable for people listening who don't necessarily, maybe they haven't competed before, or maybe they've not competed much and right. they might not have any system in place. They might just be kind of free balling it on the day. They may even try their, what should be their final attempt, their first attempt and just keep going at it or right. something. So I think, it's really handy and, and I found it Matt Gary's kind of system really handy kind of having it very much kind of like building into it and having a plan A and a plan B right. um, and when you're and when we're talking about it and you're talking about how when you're there and you can see the lifter you can kind of have a more objective view of their RPE and we talked about before kind of assessing and using RPE and kind of individualizing your training I think just and assessing weaknesses is so important to film lifts um, and being aware of kind of what you're doing. Uh, so I think that that's a really valuable take home from that. Um, and then just the, the final question um, for you, Mike, is to talk about, about your case study uh, that you ran last year um, and what kind of you thought about it and what results kind of, what benefits you've seen from it and whether you're planning on doing anything in future like that. Sure. Uh, I think you're referring to Project Momentum, yeah? Yeah, Project Momentum. Yeah. Sure. Um, well, we did one in 2016 around this time last year, and uh, we're doing another one now that finishes up this week. So oh, awesome. uh, we haven't, yeah, we haven't had a chance to to look at any data for this week yet. But um, it's testing a completely different idea. So my idea is that um, I have some questions about training that you know some people are you know, happy to offer a theoretical answer. Um, but there's no real, um, data on it, you know, 
and I mean, I'm not a, a scientist, you know, I don't have a lab or anything like that, but I can, um, measure results in the real world and it's not as well controlled as what you would get in a lab setting, but that's okay mm -hmm. because the questions I'm trying to answer are in this environment. So, um, I'm not trying, again, I'm not trying to, you know, publish any papers or anything like that, but I'm trying to gather some more information, some more knowledge, uh, so that, you know, I can be a better coach mm -hmm. and I can pass this information along and people can lift and hopefully do better. So the one that we did last year, um, project momentum 2016 was testing, sort of testing, uh, an idea about really increasing driving increases to frequency. And we had lifters train the competition lifts uh, four training sessions a week. And after the baseline competition lift volume, uh, each workout would have an emphasis. So you may have additional squatting or additional benching, maybe additional deadlifting, and that would change based on the day. Mm -hmm. But every day had this baseline level of competition lift volume. Um, it wasn't a lot, and it frankly wasn't hard. You know, it may be you know, three sets of five at 75% or something like that. So, you know, so you're not breaking anybody with that. And in fact, you can get through it pretty easily. You do a couple warm-ups, bang, bang, bang. You know, you can be on short rest. It's only three sets and then you move on to the next thing. Um, it adds up to be quite a bit of volume at the end of the week, but we were controlling that so that it wasn't, you know, that much more than what you would see in, you know, a normal program that we might write. Uh, so we put, gosh, about 400 people, uh, through this, through this program, but since it's all online, you know, it's volunteer basis and, uh, you're relying on people to participate in the exit questionnaire at the end, we got about a hundred responses, mm -hmm. which to be fair is pretty good. Yeah. You know, like I was pretty happy, you know, a hundred responses. You don't see, you know, again, it's not a, a laboratory controlled study at all, but, there are also not that many laboratory controlled yeah. studies with a hundred participants. Um, anyway, I was pretty happy with the mm -hmm. level of participation. And at the end we saw that the average, um, the average lifter put, what was it? I think 22 kilos on their total in eight, which was, which is really great. You know, mm -hmm. we were thrilled with the results, you know, and these weren't like novice lifters. Um, I want to say the average was, uh, a 340 Wilkes or something like that, you know, which, I mean, that's not high level, especially these days, you know, yeah. um, it's not high level, but it's certainly experienced, yeah. you know, they had something to the tune of like four years of lifting experience, you know, so they're not novice lifters mm -hmm. and to, to add that amount to your total in, in eight weeks, we were pretty pleased yeah. with, you know, the one this year, is um, quite a bit different. And I suppose I can talk about it a little bit because the project finishes up today. Um, I haven't, I won't have done any writing on it by the end of this or, and I haven't done any data analysis yet, but we wanted to test the idea of um, how good are you at doing rep work versus uh, your singles and see if that means anything in terms of what training you respond best to. So, in the beginning, we had um, we had all the participants do a one RM, and then take eighty percent of that one RM and do uh, an AMRAP set. 
And the AMRAP sets varied. You know, some people could do four reps with 80%. And we had, I think, one guy that did 15 reps with 80%. You know, now the average was seven or eight. Yeah. You know, which is what you'd expect. And it seemed to be pretty fairly normally distributed past that. But so we took some people that uh, were, you know, we kind of split them up into groups. You know, we had a group that's good at high, uh, that can do high reps with 80% and we trained them with higher reps. Then we took another group that was high reps at 80% and trained them with low reps and then vice versa, you know, with the other groups. And so what we want to do is see if there's any sort of correlation, you know, these people really respond well, uh, to this kind of training or see if that tells us anything, Mm -hmm. you know, um, when I looked at, uh, studies that had been done, none of them quite answered that question, at least none that I was aware of, you know, and I checked around a bit, but uh, maybe I missed something, but none of them quite got to that question. So mm-hmm. hopefully we can learn something new from this and, and, you know, find a better starting point for that program. Yeah. You know, we're still going to have to adapt it as, as we learn more about the lifter, but if we can find a better starting point, then yeah. all the better. No, that's really yeah. interesting because I know, um, I don't know if you know Menno Henselman, but he's done yeah. similar work with kind of he, talking about muscle fiber types and doing testing and then working more towards that rep range to bring up kind of because they're more fast or slow twitch dominant. And I guess that's a similar yeah. sort of inkling that you're having there. Um, and I guess we saw it with your female lifter who responded really well to the lower intensities, which you wouldn't right. necessarily expect. So now that's really right. interesting. And Hopefully the viewers will be on the lookout for that and uh, that'll be on your website in kind of a number of months. Yeah. Um, so we'll collect the, uh, the follow-up data, you know, in the next few days here. And, um, after that I'll have to kind of wait through it and start, start, uh, pulling it apart a little bit and figure out, uh, you know, if it tells us anything, but yeah, I mean, like you said, we know that different lifters respond to different intensities. And I guess what I'm looking for is, is there a way to predict that before we get started? Yeah. And that way <clears throat> it reduces the amount of experimentation that we yeah. have to do to find that uh, golden egg, you know? No, that's awesome. Um, and yeah. that's something I hope, I hope a lot of the listeners have taken away, and I've certainly taken away how much data gathering you're actually taking. And although it sounds all very complicated and complex, you simplify it to a system that works incredibly well. Um, and I think it just goes like, and I know I've talked about it before, without data, you're kind of blind. So data collection has to be kind of really important to people who want to get the best results. Right. And, and I think the goal as well is that, um, you know, this can all happen behind the scenes if you want it to, you know. I totally get it that there are people that don't want to think about their training like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even if they think it's cool, they don't want to it, – it's just too much to, to have to think about it for your own training. you know. Um, so my goal is to make it as simple as possible on the lifter end of things. Yeah. Hey, go to the gym, do this exercise. You know, Here's the projected weights and how I want you to structure your workout and so on. Um, but then as far as figuring everything else out, you know, that can be done, um, when you're not in the gym, you know, this whole sense of, uh, paralysis by analysis. Um, it's just that there's a time and place for analysis 
that time and place is not during the workout. <laughs> you know, so let's, uh, you know, you can piece these things together, you know, and if you like to tinker with stuff, then that's fine. I want to have those tools available and have conversations with our lifters and things like that. But, you know, if that's not you and you don't ever want to see it, you know, then, you know, that's fine too, mm-hmm. you know. No, brilliant. Um, and I think that's a good place to actually close it. Uh, I want to thank right. you so much for your time and I hope the listeners have taken a lot away from our discussion. And if people were to try and kind of, if I was going to point them in your direction, where would you like them to go? I know you've got your own podcast, website, sure. um, not so active on social media so much, but Instagram, I know you're on at least posting up some videos of your lifts and things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Instagram tends to be my kind of, online training log so if you're interested in such things but i try to make some facebook posts uh as well uh we've got a newsletter or a podcast um so uh, you can connect through a lot of those things via the reactive training systems website and like i said we've got the uh the the training log and associated tools on there as well so yeah uh, i'd love to love to hear from people if you'd like to connect no, yeah, definitely. I, I have to say the, the newsletter is fantastic. So if, if you just oh, wanted thanks. something easy to just read, it's not long, it's very easy, digestible to read, and I always get some value from it. So um, that and Thank the YouTube you. channel, I mean, for little snippets of information are yeah. invaluable. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you again, Mike. Take care.